This morning, we have the great privilege to hear the word of God proclaimed by Pastor David Lattimore. I know Pastor Lattimore would not tell you these things about himself, so I'm going to do it. Reverend Dr. David G. Lattimore became the sixth pastor of the historic 15th Avenue Baptist Church. How old is 15th Avenue? I don't even know. I should know that. 135? I started with 100. 135 years and six pastors. That is a testament to your church. Praise God. That's not, some churches they call them preacher eater churches. They're not a, they're not a preacher eater church. That's great. I'm the fourth pastor in 80 years at Woodmont Baptist Church, so we're working on it. <laughs> the sixth pastor at the historic 15th Avenue. Dr. Lattimore's a seasoned pastor as well as a successful executive and an accomplished scholar. He most recently served as senior pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church in Joliet, Illinois. Reverend Dr. Lattimore graduated from a little school up north, you may have heard of it, it's called Harvard University, with a BA in economics in 1990. Received his Master's of Divinity degree from the excellent Divinity School at another school you may have heard of east of us called Duke University in 2008. He received his Doctorate of Ministry degree in homiletics from McCormick Theological Seminary in May of 2015, where he was awarded the prize for outstanding D-Men thesis and academic record. And just a few weeks ago, really recently, right, a couple weeks ago, uh, Dr. Lattimore received his PhD in theology from the University of Chicago's Divinity School, where his dissertation focused on the effects of the endogenous, I had to look up endogenous, endogenous theology of neoliberalism on the theology and homiletics of the black church. I think that has to do with theology and preaching, uh, the historic black church. Pastor Lattimore is blessed to be the husband of Minister Tammy Brown Lattimore, who is a, a preacher in her own right. Next time, we're going to have to have you come preach, Minister Tammy. We'd love to have you share a word with us as well. And the father of Grace, Sydney, David II, Lauren, and Nina. So David's in the middle of these two girls on either side. Bless his heart. <laughs> When I first met Dr. Lattimore, I, I did some research on him, and, and I was, you know, I'm a rookie pastor, my first pastorate, and I was intimidated, I'll admit, uh, by his resume and his academic record, and when he first walked into the restaurant, he had a very nice button-up shirt and very nice sweater, and, and then he had Chuck Taylor high tops on, and I was like, yeah, I like this guy. I can, I can relate to this guy. We had a great time together of, of encouragement, and, and he shared a lot of wisdom with me at that time, and I just appreciate uh, him sharing with me and, and helping to make me a, a better pastor as well, and just how gracious and, and humble and kind he is, and I've enjoyed getting to know him, and I look forward to, to more um, shared ministry together. I know you'll all be blessed by him sharing with us today. Amen, certainly. We thank God on this morning both for uh, the ministries of both churches uh, and this opportunity that God has uniquely granted to us to come together one more time uh, and to be able to lift our voices in praise to our everlasting Father. And I just want you to take just a second to say in your own way, thank you, Lord, for the gift of this day. Amen? Amen. Uh, before we begin, uh, I want you to just join me in lifting our hearts up to heaven and to celebrate our God and to ask his presence to remain with us 
as we gather here in worship. In the name of a living God, we do stand here on this morning. First, Lord, just filled with gratitude for this opportunity for your sons and daughters to gather together from the various corners of this city to stand as one family, as Israel, before its sovereign God and to lift our voice in thanksgiving. And we thank you, God, not because we are ignorant of the dilemmas that confront us, not because we don't face difficulty on every hand, not because we are unaffected by the circumstances that confront us, but we lift our voice in thanksgiving in spite of these things, for we are confident that you are a good God and that you watch over us and sustain us. Now we ask you to meet us in this moment of worship that we might find a deeper revelation of you as we come together as a diverse congregation anchored and covered in the blood of your son. Bless this ministry that has opened its doors graciously to us. Bless those who are both with us and who are participating online. That above all else, you might be glorified, that we might be edified in this house of worship. We declare blessings over this time in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus the Christ we pray. Those who love the Lord said amen and amen. Now, I know that you have heard this cliche before, but our tradition is a tradition deeply anchored in call and response, so that when I say amen, you say amen, amen. and I say praise the Lord. There you go. Amen. Amen. Don't, don't have me feeling like I'm up here by myself this morning. Amen. As we gather together for this unique moment of worship. Listen. I am incredibly honored and humbled to stand with the Woodmont family on this morning for this, uh, again, a resumption of what had been a long tradition between our churches of joint worship. I am well aware of the context of this moment, both in terms of the history of both our ministries and this moment in our country. I celebrate what was inaugurated by both of our previous pastors. And I believe that now more than any other time in our history, the friendships between our two ministries are desperately needed. I am appreciative of the kind and gracious hospitality extended to me by your illustrious pastor, Pastor Parker. I'm grateful for both the extension of friendship, the kindness, and the care to which he has exhibited in my life. Uh, it just so happens that I was talking recently with um, the dean over at the College of Theology and Ministry at Belmont, uh, who told me to also share his high regards for your pastor, uh, who I am told was an illustrious student at Belmont University. So Dr. Gottney Gwaltney also brings his care and his love. My uh, certainly appreciation for the family uh, that stands with and alongside your pastor, Sister Morgan, and the three children, because I am well aware of the burden that a pastor's family bears so that a pastor might serve, and I honor you on this morning. And speaking of family, obviously I would be remiss if I didn't take a second uh, to honor the love of my life, my own wife and first lady of 15th Avenue Baptist Church, a preacher again in her own renown, Minister Tammy Lattimore. I'm thankful that she is here with me. We normally 
Uh, we're now at that stage in parenting. We only have one child left of the five in the house, and we're desperately trying to get her off the gravy train. <laughs> Amen. I, I talk to so many who talk about the dangers and burdens of empty nesting, but I got to be honest with you, I'm looking forward, amen, to putting things down and they still being there when I go back to look for them, amen. So they are not with us on today. Your uh, children's ministry was so gracious to reach out to us, but uh, all of our children are, are fortunately far away and they have delighted my life, not by bringing me another award or another achievement, but at least three of them now bring me W-2 forms. And for that, I praise the Lord. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Man, I, I bring you greetings from 15th Avenue Baptist Church. I am so delighted uh, to see members of our own congregation here who I've only been able to see via Zoom, uh, amen, over these last few weeks. We're grateful for this opportunity to be together. We welcome those of you from both ministries that are serving or participating in this worship from via online. Uh, God bless you and welcome you into this moment. I don't know about uh, you all. You've been worshiping here at Woodmont for the last four weeks. Uh, but this is, as your pastor said, the first opportunity uh, that we've had as a family at 15th to come together. And I don't know for those of you who came this morning whether you had the same virus-related impact on your lives that I had on mine. Uh, I, I have not uh, uh, had any encounters with the virus. I thought I was relatively free. Uh, but then I realized that the virus had taken its toll on me as I slipped for the first time into a pair of pants that required a belt. Amen. And somehow the virus has succeeded in shrinking most of my clothes. Amen. So I, I ask you to pray for me because I almost didn't make it this morning. Hey, amen. It's my understanding that your pastor has been walking through the book of Acts with this ministry. And interestingly, 15th Avenue has been walking through the book of Acts as a part of our Bible study. It's my understanding that the overarching theme of this encounter is liberation, how Christ breaks the bonds of sin and sorrow. And your pastor was kind enough to share with me that today's focus scripturally was the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. As I encountered that passage of scripture, I realized how powerfully it spoke to our churches at this particular stage. And so I'm going to, if you will indulge me, to pick up a passage of the scripture that was scheduled for this morning. And I invite you, my brothers and sisters, to join me in Acts, the 17th chapter. And I'm going to examine or lift up for us verses 22 through 28. Acts, the 17th chapter, beginning at the 22nd verse is where we will anchor our time for this morning. There, in this writing of Luke, we find these words. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the earth and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. 
and does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all of the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling <clears throat> so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your poets have said, for we are his offspring. These are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. For just a few moments, my brothers and sisters, if you will allow me to, again, focus our attention on this text, I'm going to take as a title over our time together, How to Be a Good Atheist. How to Be a Good Atheist. Now, before you retreat and start to look for your keys and head to the doors, I just ask you to walk with me for just one second. The text that we have just encountered uh, uh, describes for us Paul in one of the renowned cities of Greece. He is in the city of Athens, and although by the time Paul arrives there, its glory has somehow and somewhat diminished, it remains an imposing and impressive city. Having established its height in the fifth and the fourth centuries, it remains a significant presence in the world. Athens was renowned for its architecture, its temples, its theaters, known for its poets, its politicians, and its orators, all of which contributed to uh, the greatness of this city, the city known as the home of Plato and Aristotle, the home of the Epicureans and the Stoics, it continued to exercise significant influence on the education, literature, culture of the time. It is into this great city that this great preacher of the gospel, Paul, has now entered. And his goal for coming to the city is to evangelize the Athenians. He is in the city of Athens while he waits for Silas and Timothy to join them so that they might continue their journey and spread the gospel throughout all of Greece. And when Paul arrives in this city, he observes that the people of Athens appear to be a very religious people. He observes the many altars of Athenian worship, the many gods that are celebrated and recognized and revered by the city. And in the midst of these many tributes to the numerous and assorted gods recognized by the citizens of this city, Paul discovers a monument in their midst, erected alongside all of the rest of the altars and dedicated to the unknown God. This presents Paul with an opportunity to proclaim to this educated and sophisticated community of Greeks who the unknown God truly is. Paul informs the Athenians that in spite of their worship of all of these deities, the one that they call the unknown God 
is the one and only true God. Not a God to be set aside and next to and along with other gods, but the ruler over all of creation. Paul declares this is the God that has created all of the universe and demands the faithful and loyal reverence of all of humanity. In fact, Paul is affirming what we see the psalmist write, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and everything and everyone that dwells therein. And in making this public declaration, by refusing to remain silent for the sake of peace, Paul demonstrates that the truth of the gospel is always in direct confrontation with pagan idolatry, philosophy, and the intellectual commitments to communal culture. That the gospel story that we hold near and dear to our hearts refuses to accept that our God is but one among many. That our God is the only God and demands rejection by his people of any other object of worship. In this cultural context, Paul refuses to accept or to respect that the other gods presented by the people of Athens uh, ought to be embraced or tolerated. And his refusal to accept these other gods would have opened him up to the label of being an atheist. For you have to understand that the language of atheist does not carry for Paul the same connotations that it carries for you and I. For Paul, atheist did not mean that one did not believe in God, but rather the Christians of the early church were considered atheist because they elected, they chose, and they remained faithful to the worship of only one God. It was their monotheism, their commitment to Jehovah Jireh that anchored this accusation against them. For to be pious and religious at this time was understood as being open and accepting of the participation and worship of many gods. And to refuse to do so, to remain loyal to one God, was considered unreligious and thus the claim and the label of atheists. So many in the early church were accused of being atheists. And it may well be, my brothers and sisters, at this particular moment in the history around us, that we and the contemporary church are being called using the definition of atheist that we find applied to the early church it may well be that you and I are called to live as good atheists. That you and I are being called just as Paul and the early church was called to declare with power and with confidence that we serve the only true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That you and I have staked our lives both in this world and the world to come in the belief that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died and rose for our sins, 
that any of us who called upon him might be saved. He is the only one and true God. That it may well be that we are called in this moment to reject the other gods that culture and community uh, seeks to draw us into worshiping and that we refuse to compromise or to give in to even the uncomfortable truths of our faith, that we must stand faithfully serving Jesus Christ and him alone. The, the reality is that in this moment, the uncomfortable truth that confronts us is that we are being called not to renounce our faith, but we are being asked to practice our faith in peaceful and respectful coexistence of the other gods of the culture around us. That we are being asked not to deny our faith explicitly, but to accept uh, the offerings, the idols, and the gods of the culture in which we exist. And the reality is that Paul, as he walks through the streets of Athens, as described in these writings of, of, of Luke, he could have just as been easily been walking through the streets of any major city in America. The biblical text that we have before us could have easily been describing Paul in New York or LA, in Dallas or in Atlanta, or dare I say that Paul could have even been walking down Broadway here in Nashville. And the same conditions that Paul confronted in Athens, he would have confronted in our own city. The only, the same conditions and circumstances that he spoke against, he would have found in these cities and in our very own. For we live at a time when we are being called to worship other gods. And the prevalence of this temptation permeates our very existence to such a degree that we don't often recognize that the worship of other gods even permeates the church at times and is all around us. That even those of us who find ourselves in religious worship have to wonder whether or not we have in the process of the practice of our faith allowed the gods of culture and country to infiltrate our existence and wrap themselves up in religious language and stand underneath the Christian cross while all the while drawing our attention away from the truth of Calvary. That given the condition of our country and our state and our city and our churches, the question that you and I must confront as uncomfortable as it might be is can we like Paul be good atheists? I can hear some of you asking, why on earth would we uh, have to worry about that at this time? We're a good Christian church. I can even hear the members of my own ministry responding in similar fashion. We've not allowed the culture of this world to seep into our belief systems or to pollute our worship. But isn't the real measure of faithfulness not found in the comfort of our rituals, but rather in the discomfort of adhering to the truth of the gospel, a gospel that is always calling us to stand in uncomfortable places and to proclaim uncomfortable positions. And this is not the first time the Christian church has had to wonder about this question or been challenged to forego the comfort of maintaining the status quo. 
For I know that there are many of you who remember the words of Martin Luther King at the height of the civil rights movement when he wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail, when he called on the Christian church and particularly white clergy and believers to stand in solidarity with the struggle for justice, when many churches held tightly and silently to the God of the status quo refusing to open their mouths or move their hands and feet to stand with those who were oppressed or the victims of systemic and historic injustice, all the while declaring that they're faithful to a God who has always stood on the side of the oppressed. And you and I now stand in a very similar moment. The Christian church is being asked to worship at the altar of culture, to embrace the status quo, to turn a blind eye toward division and injustice that has been too long a reality in the lives of too many and particularly in the lives of people of color. The church has wrapped itself up in comfortable cliches, seeking to live within a false peace and embracing positions that aren't too disruptive or don't make parishioners too uncomfortable. But the reality is the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to move boldly even into places of discomfort. Uh, a troubling example, example of this is the way in which the slogan, all lives matter, has been so quickly embraced by so many. Failing to realize that white lives have always mattered and that all lives will never matter until black and brown lives matter. That the true God that we serve again stands on the side of the oppressed and that we as Christian believers, black and white and brown, should stand and grieve but also use our voices to cry out for justice to those who have suffered for far too long that as believers we're called to grieve and to call for justice for the George Floyds and the Eric Gardners, for the Breonna Taylors and the Stephen Clarks and the Botham Jeans and the Philasto Filio Castile and the Alton Sterling and the list that is far too long to remunerate this morning, that we are called to grieve what has befallen these and so many other lives and to not just grieve them in the privacy and the safety of our sanctuary, but to declare to the world that we will embrace and demand justice for all. We as believers, black and white, are called to reject the God of violence wherever it raises its ugly head. We reject the violence when it shows up in the midst of social protest, asking for social injustice. We reject the violence that shows up in the hands of vigilantes, laboring under the mistaken label of lawful militia. And we reject the violence when it occurs at the hands of those who have sworn to preserve, protect, and serve our communities. Good atheists, folk who declare fidelity to God, Realize we've seen far too many acts of violence perpetrated on, in the name of justice against those who were powerless. And we're called, if we truly love the Lord, to stand in this moment and to declare and to proclaim to the world that no one, as a child of God, should live in fear 
because of the color of their skin. We also reject the reductionist thinking found on both sides of the political aisle that suggests we have to choose between blue lives and black lives. We reject the notion that somehow this is in opposition to one another. For who among us doesn't have friends or family or neighbors or kinfolk or even sons and daughters who wear the uniform of the police? Who among us doesn't share the same desperate desire that the families of our officers hold near and dear to their hearts, that their loved ones, when they go out to work, will return home safely? And we reject the idea that somehow we can't love and care for our police officers and love and care for black and brown lives. That we can't support the police and also hold them to higher standards that our communities deserve. We reject the God of culture who tells us we have to choose one or the other, but the God that we serve has enough love flowing through us that we can love both our officers and support them and declare a need for better standards of police activity in our community. And just as Paul in this text rejects the paganism of this moment, you and I have been called to do the same. We've been called to resist the gods of culture or to mistake nationalism for Christianity or to think that somehow to be Christian automatically means some allegiance to country or party and that that's the same as Christian faith. For the Christian faith has always labored to hold the nation accountable to God's will and good atheists. Those who love the Lord profess an undying fidelity to God and God alone. Good Christians and good atheists reject the notion of individualism that has been promulgated in the marketplace, that thinks of the world as a contest between you and me, and that the only way for one to do well is for the other to demise. True Christianity demands that we extend grace and hospitality to the foreigner in our midst, regardless of whether the foreigner arrived by traversing a river, by climbing a wall, or by coming through a place and a port or border, that God requires of us as his children to always extend hospitality to others, a hospitality that demands more from us than simply subjugating the children of those foreigners to cages. God demands more from us. And the notions that culture has offered to us that somehow it is consistent with our faith to see some of the things that we've witnessed uh, is evidence that in some places and among some people, we have lost our grip on God and given in to the God of culture. Finally, the God that we serve is not submitted to the God of the marketplace. The God that we serve does not believe that our well-being can be measured by our materiality or that the accumulation of wealth is the goal for a Christian community or that our well-being is not defined by our ability to care for those that are different than ourselves. One of the beauties of the friendships between our churches is that it allows both of us to more fully experience God in the hands of someone different than us. 
because it's only when we see God through the eyes of someone who does not share our perspective that we begin to understand the richness and the fullness of the God that we serve. Now, I recognize that if you should take these extreme positions that I think your faith demands of you, there are going to be people who are going to respond to you as the folks in Athens responded to Paul. They shook their heads dismissively. They said, we'll listen to your nonsense some other time. And you should not be surprised if those in your social circles, those whom you love, may respond the same way. But here's the good news that Paul declares for us. Here's the good news that the gospel extends to us. That as we stand faithful to God and refuse to submit or to surrender or, to or, or fail to make our declarations known, God will stand with us. And we can declare just as Paul declared over in the book of Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For I recognize this gospel is the power for my salvation and for everyone who believes. If you follow the 17th chapter on, you'll notice that Paul makes some declarations that ought to be near and dear to our hearts. He said, listen, God can be found for those who seek him. So you need not worry that you have to stand by yourself. God is on your side. He says that the God that we serve has created everything that we see. That means God has created you, God has created me, and he did not create us that we would lose our diversity. He created us that we might experience him more fully through our diversity. The fact that we are different is what we celebrate because the God that we serve was too great and too good to just be captured in one mode, in one model, but he reminds us of the magnitude of his power. God that we serve declares that we stand faithfully even when it's uncomfortable and we declare that we've decided like Paul and like the good atheists of the early church that we've made Jesus our choice in our tradition in the African-American religious tradition there is a song that we sing so often that encapsulates what we're called to do it simply says some folk have decided that they would rather have houses and land. Some folk have chosen silver and they've chosen gold. These things they treasure, but they forget about their souls. But I've decided to make Jesus my choice. Like a good atheist, I've decided to ally, my, allow my, ally myself with Jesus and Jesus alone. And then the songwriter goes a step further. He said, listen, if you decide to be a good atheist, if you decide to stand strong uh, for the faith that you declare to be real, you're going to recognize the road is going to get rough and the going is going to get tough and the hills are going to be hard to climb. But like the songwriter said, I started out too long ago. And there is no doubt in my mind I have made Jesus my choice. Good atheists declare Jesus and Jesus alone. And in this time, it may be well appropriate that we become good atheists. May God bless you.
Wow. What you have witnessed today is a prophetic word, a thoroughly biblical and prophetic word that is desperately needed in our church and in our city. And you have heard a, a masterful sermon, but that's, that's the gift of God expressed through Pastor Lattimore today. And we are grateful, not just for you and for your family and for your church, but we're grateful for the gospel that compels us to reject the pantheon of cultural gods that we have been subjugated by so many times and times again, and to live free into liberation as we reject all other false gods, but Jesus Christ alone in whom we find salvation for our souls. Thank you. And, and let me say on behalf of Woodmont and our membership, we do stand with black and brown lives that we do say black lives matter and that all lives cannot matter until black and brown lives do matter. And we do stand for that and we stand with you because we stand with Jesus Christ. That's why we stand with you. And that's, that is the hope of our city. That's the hope of our nation is to come together through Jesus Christ. And it takes those who have a voice to lift every voice. And we are just, again, so grateful and honored and humbled for the word that you have brought um, uh, us today. I am wrecked. I feel just wrecked emotionally and I, in a good way, in a good, good way, because it leads me closer to Jesus, my Lord. So um, I want to ask if, if, Adrian, if you would just lead us in a song right now. I'm sorry, your pianist just left. I'm sorry. Aaron, can we just defer to, to Adrian and to... Uh, your music team, if y'all would just come and lead us in a song. We want to sing with you. We want to be led by you and to stand with you in this moment. So we just ask that you would come and just uh, lead us in a song and, and we'll be able to follow along, um, whatever it may be, we'll do our best. But let's stand together in this time. And if you feel like you need to deal with the Lord, I pray that you will do that honestly and openly. I, I feel uncomfortable and I hope you do too, because the gospel forces us to reckon with the things that maybe where we have fallen to the culture. If you feel uncomfortable today, that's a good thing. Embrace that, wrestle with that, ask the Lord to meet you where you are because he will do that. And let's stand together as one. We love each other. We love our police officers. We love our African-American, our Latino brothers and sisters in this city because Jesus loves them as well. And if you want to talk to me, I'll be in the, the North Portico afterwards about joining our church or about accepting Jesus Christ, whatever it is that you need to decide today. Don't leave this place until you've dealt honestly with the Lord. Adrian, come lead us in a, in a song. <laughs> 